You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Today we are looking at uh, one of those core practices of Jesus that deals with food and the table. So why don't you grab your Bible, if you have it, and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to introduce you to someone, and I want to tell you their story, okay? So I want to introduce you this morning to Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And by the way, isn't that the most amazing name ever? Like her name... Her actual name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Raise your hand if you're familiar with her. Okay, three people in the room. Four people in the room. Okay, nice, very good. Okay, well, I, I kind of didn't think you were, so I wanted to tell you her story. If you're, if you're unfamiliar with her story, um, Rosaria was basically a far-left, radical, lesbian feminist. She uh, was in a long-term committed relationship with her life partner. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in New York, Uh, with a specialty in postmodern critical theory and literature. And she was uh, a national leader in the LGBTQ community. So, um, I mean, basically not the kind of person who's a big fan of Bible-believing Christians, and Bible-believing Christians were not necessarily a big fan of her. Several years ago, she was writing this book about how Christians are the worst, um, how we are a, a menace and a threat to society. And to tease her book, she wrote this scathing article about Christians that was picked up and published by the New York Times. And it went viral, like before viral was a thing on, online. Like it was, the article was, was mailed to all the churches in the surrounding area of, of New York and New York City, and Christians were passing it around and reading it, and then writing and sending in this hate mail to her. And, uh, but one pastor, one local pastor in the area, read this article, and he wrote a letter to her that was a little bit different in tone. And Rosaria talks about how she, she uh, when she received this letter, she had a special box for all the hate mail that she would receive from Christians who would write and call her nasty names and talk about how rotten she is and how she should go to hell and all this kind of stuff. And so she was expecting this letter from this pastor to be the same, and, and uh, uh, she was about to just throw it away, but she decided to read it. Um, and then she, to her, her surprise, she comments how it was, it was different. Something was different about it. She says, it was kind, it was warm. It was gracious, and it came with a personal invitation. So this pastor invites her to come over to her house and have dinner with he and his wife, and she thinks, um, well, I might as well do that because it would be good research for my book, right? So I'm going to go, and I'm going to eat with the enemy, and I'm going to sit across the table from these people, and I'm going to study them. And so she went, and she writes about how she remembers sitting in, in her car in his driveway for like an hour, debating on whether or not to go in. She's like, I'm about to go in and sit across from these people who represent everything that I'm against. And she talks about how she was angry and she was really afraid. Uh, She finally summoned up the courage to get out of her car, walk up to the door, knock on the door, and she continued to be surprised by what happens next. Uh, In her story, she talks about how the first thing she remembers is the way she was greeted. She said that they made eye contact with me. And they were warm, and they were humble, and they were genuine. And then she talks about how they ate a simple meal, nothing elaborate. They ate a simple meal together at the table, and they talked openly about sexuality and the Bible. And these people weren't defensive toward her questions, and they made her feel at home instead of feeling like an enemy. 
or an outcast. This was the start of a two-year process where Rosaria and this pastor and his wife would enter into each other's homes and engage in conversation over shared meals together for two years. Today, Rosaria Butterfield is a follower of Jesus. She's written several gospel-centered books and resources. She's married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor outside Duke University. They have several children, and they are foster parents and basically run a Christian commune out of their house. The question I want to pose to you this morning is, how in the world does that happen? How does this happen? How, how does, you have to ask that question when you, when, you, when you hear her story. How does a radical lesbian feminist who's an intellectual come to believe in the gospel? Now, mind you, this is not the first time she's heard the gospel. She talks about how she's been to many gay pride parades where, where she, she heard strangers screaming at her about Jesus. So what was different about her experience with this pastor and his wife? And in Rosaria's own words, she sums it up as hospitality. She describes it like this. Here's what she says. Here's a quote from Rosaria. I'll put it on the screen for you. I came to follow Jesus because Ken and his wife Floyd chose to befriend an outsider. They welcomed me in and gave me food and shelter and a safe place to be myself, the good, the bad, and the broken. They entered into my world as I entered theirs. I came to Christ, or he came to me, through something she calls radically ordinary hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality, she says. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing people, a person, to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors They seek out the underprivileged, the outcast, the lost. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. How brilliant is that last line? The gospel of Jesus comes with a house key. What Rosaria wants us to see in her story, and what I want to focus on this morning, is the reality that at the very heart of the gospel and the mission of Jesus, and at the very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is this ancient practice that we see in his life, which the Bible calls hospitality. And and before I define and unpack what that means, uh, let me just go ahead and set my thesis on the table, if you will. Um, The big idea that I want us to wrestle with this morning is that if Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost, if that's his mission, hospitality was his method. This is how he accomplished this. And so it's not just something we see Jesus do. It's something he commands his disciples to do. So I want to contend that according to Jesus, if we're going to be the church God's calling us to be in Paragould, Jonesboro, and in the surrounding region, it's only going to happen if we are a people who practice hospitality. Put another way, I'll put it on the screen, put another way, here's the big idea. It's impossible to make disciples of Jesus if you don't practice the hospitality of Jesus. Okay, and so just to see that, uh, I want to first look at this in, in Jesus' life. Let's take a look at this practice in his life. So go back to Luke chapter 19, verse 1, and let's just dive in together, okay? Here's, uh, here's what Luke says. Uh, Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, um, and... 
climbed up in the sycamore. He, uh, okay, so he was a, he was a chief, he was a chief, listen to that, tax collector. He was the, he was a leader among the tax collectors. That's important. And he was rich. Luke's telling you a lot in those, in that sentence, okay? He was seeking to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see uh, because he was small in stature. And so he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, Jesus looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry. The only time you should ever be in a hurry is to be with Jesus, okay? Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And, uh, and when they, that is the religious leaders, saw it, they grumbled and said, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So they're furious because Jesus claims to be some prophet, and here he is sitting at the table with this enemy, right? Now, it's easy if, like me, you grew up in the church and you read this story in some kind of weird, like, Sunday school flannel board kind of way, um, and you grew up singing the cute little song, which makes it sound like the moral of the story is just that Jesus loves short people, which uh, would be good news for me. Um, I'm average height, by the way, not... Not short, for the record. Um, but l- listen, to, to the original audience, this is not cute. It's not funny and it's not sweet. In fact, it's, it's downright dangerous and disruptive to the status quo. Yeah. Here's what you have to understand. Zacchaeus is not a cute little guy. He's actually a ruthless crook. Luke takes a, some measures here to point out that he was a leader among the tax collectors. So in that day and age, tax, tax collectors were Jews who worked for the Roman government and they made their living off of stealing from their own people. And so a, a tax collector, could, he could tack on his own fee to the Roman tax. And so if the Roman tax was 50%, he could come to your house and say, today for you it's 70% or it's 80%. And if you refuse to pay it, um, he would simply have his henchmen murder you in front of your family. So you can imagine how hated and despised these people were. In fact, in that culture, tax collectors were on the very bottom of the moral, you know, spiritual ladder, if you will, right next to prostitutes. And what's interesting is who do you see Jesus eat more, eat with more than anybody else in the New Testament? Tax collectors and prostitutes. And I I still don't think we really understand the weight of the emotion that the the original audience feels. It's kind of easy for us to point the finger at the Pharisees and be like, chill out, bro. Like, It's not that big a deal. To really understand the emotion of this and feel the gravity of this, you almost have to kind of translate this into our culture. So I want you to do an imagination experiment and think about in your mind, like, who's your enemy or who in our society do we kind of consider to be the bottom of the moral ladder? We're not going to name them because I don't want to shame them, but you know exactly who they are, the things they've been convicted for, the things they've done. You know exactly who those people are in your mind because they exist in your mind. And so I want you to imagine seeing Jesus go to dinner with those people. Imagine watching Jesus invite those people into his home or him knocking on the door of their house and going in and closing the door and wondering, like, what's going on the other side of that door? Like, how is this? How would you feel? Scared? Angry? Furious? How dare you? Jesus, you can't do this. This is exactly how people felt in that day. Which is why one theologian I read said that Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with. Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with. 
So we ask the question, how, how does Jesus explain himself for this behavior? Like, I mean, how does he justify eating and associating with these kinds of people? Good question. Let's just keep reading the story, okay? Pick back up in verse 8, Luke 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Something's happening in this guy's heart. There's a change that's taking place. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Listen to this line. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says, you want to know why I hang out with tax collectors and sinners? It's because I came on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. Think about that language. Put your eyes on that word and think about that word lost for just a second. Raise your hand if you've ever been lost somewhere geographically. I remember the first summer in Kansas City, the first time I ever ventured off and tried to leave my apartment and go to Walmart just to get like milk and bread. And I got so turned around and so lost in this big city. And, and the reason is because I was a stranger and a foreigner and an outsider to the city. I, I did not know my way around. This is before like smartphones and you could like just GPS it or whatever, Google Maps. Like I didn't have that kind of technology. I was just like winging it. And I didn't know my way around because I was a stranger in that place. And all I really knew is I kind of drove around and on the wrong side of town is that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm far away from home. I'm far away from home. When Jesus uses this language of the lost, he's saying that I came on a rescue mission for those who are far from God, who are outsiders to my kingdom, who are strangers to my love and grace. And let me just say, if that's you this morning, um, first of all, you're welcome here. As Jared said, we are so glad you're here. If you're a disciple... If, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you know exactly what it feels like to be lost. And so you're right at home. We, we know what that feels like. We will not shame you for that. You're welcome here. We're glad you're here. And it's a safe place, as we say every week, for you to belong before you believe and to kind of journey with us. It's also really good news if that's you because Jesus in this text says, I'm pursuing you. I came to find you and forgive you. And save you into a loving relationship with myself. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's why he hangs out with Zacchaeus. That's why he wants to hang out with you and with me. Now, here's what's interesting. If you're in the original audience, okay, and you hear this phrase, I came to seek and son of man came to seek and save the lost, your ears are going to perk up. Because Luke's already used this phrase one other time. And so when you hear it read a second time, you're going to connect the dots, okay? And you're going to start to pick up on some things. So let's flip back, if you will. Go back to Luke chapter 7. I want to read this really quickly. Luke chapter 7. And if you don't want to turn there, we'll put it on the screen. Although I think there's something powerful about actually turning there in a physical text. Um, Luke chapter 7, verse 33. Jesus is teaching and he says this. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So what Jesus is saying right here is that apparently the story of him eating with Zacchaeus is not the exception, but it's the norm for Jesus. 
This is something that he apparently did a whole lot. And in fact, it is. There are so many examples uh, in the Gospels of Jesus eating and drinking with people who are far from God that you see right here in verse 34, the religious leaders actually accuse him of doing it to excess. They see him eating and drinking so much that they say, dude, you, you are a friend of tax collectors and sinners and you're a drunkard and a glutton. That's how much they see him eating and drinking. And, and we know that's not true of Jesus, right? Because he was without sin. And yet you still have to wrap your mind around the fact that he got that reputation somehow. And if you're just in Luke's gospel alone, there are over 50 references to Jesus eating and drinking. Over 50 references to him eating and drinking. So much so that one scholar says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. (laughs) Always. He's either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And if our goal as disciples is to become like Jesus, I want to do more of that. Um, Because it involves lots of eating, and I'm down with that, okay? Here's what's fascinating. Um, Scholars who are experts on the gospel of Luke, they point out there's only two times in Luke's gospel he uses this phrase, the Son of Man came. And they say that he does it to make a particular point. One time Luke uses it to describe Jesus' mission, The other time, Luke uses it to describe Jesus' methodology. So right here we have it on the screen for you. Luke 19.10, he says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' mission. That's what he did. Luke 7.34, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is Jesus' method. This is how he did it. Jesus came on a rescue mission to bring outsiders into his kingdom. How did he do it? According to the Gospels, he did it one meal at a time. Jesus' method of evangelism, which is a fancy word that simply means sharing the gospel, advancing the gospel, his methodology was almost always inviting outsiders to come and be with him and share a meal with him at a table. You can't get around this. It's everywhere in his life. Um, In his book, A Meal with Jesus, which we recommend as pastors, uh, Tim Chester says this, This is why eating and drinking were so important to the mission of Jesus. They were a sign of hospitality, love, and the Father's welcome to tax collectors and sinners. His excess of food and excess of grace are linked. In the, in the ministry of Jesus, meals were an acted grace, community, and mission. So this, <clears throat> this right here, guys, this kind of eating and drinking with the lost is what New Testament writers call hospitality. This is hospitality. And I think this is a word we need to kind of get back to and reclaim um, and, and kind of talk about because I think in some ways hospitality kind of got hijacked by Martha Stewart. And, and so <clears throat> whenever you think about hospitality, you kind of think of like picture-perfect kitchen, right? And like an amazing, you know, $10,000 like kitchen and dining room with all the matching china and all this kind of stuff. And like everything's perfectly decorated for the season and all the throw pillows are on point and all that kind of stuff. And like... There's nothing wrong with that. Like in a few weeks, we'll have pumpkins and gourds like all over our house. And I love it. It's great. It's just not what the Bible means when it talks about hospitality. Okay, so um, let's talk about it. Um, the, the Greek word for hospitality, which we're going to look at in the scripture in a moment, is this word philoxenia. I do not say that to impress you. I say that because it matters. Um, philoxenia in Greek is a compound word. Um, philo means love. So think of Philadelphia, which is the city of what? Brotherly love, right? And then, so you have philo, and then you have xenos. Anybody know what xenos means? Stranger. 
Yeah, that's right there on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, Randy, you are, you are on it, dude. You, you really do have us all fooled. I hope you know that. Um, yeah, there it is right there. Stranger, guest, outsider, lost one. And so you put Philo and Xenia together. Hospitality literally means to love the stranger, to welcome in the outsider, to give the lost person a home. That's just what the word means. And so Rosaria Butterfield, again, in her book on hospitality, defines it like this. She said, hospitality is turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Or it's what we mean at fellowship when we say every week, our desire is to see you go from feeling like guests to feeling like family. And, and, and this is primarily, like it's, it starts in, as a posture in the heart, like it's a posture of welcoming others in. But it's a posture that then leaks out in your life, your budget, your time, and primarily happens in your home, in your living room, in your kitchen, and around your table. And while this is a word that, that New Testament authors do apply like to people inside the church, it's almost always used to talk about people outside the church. It's almost always used to talk about loving people who are far from God, entering into their world, and then welcoming them into yours. And so for Jesus, it's about eating and drinking with the lost. Listen, this has massive implications for us as a church and massive implications for you. Um, Acts 17, I don't know if you have seen this in the scripture, but it's pretty interesting. According to Acts 17, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have been uniquely wired and uniquely placed for unique opportunities to share the gospel and make disciples of Jesus. So God has actually placed you in circles and in context, and he's placed people in your life who are far from him, who don't know him, and he's put you there for a reason. So all of us in the room have people in our life, uh, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers who don't know Jesus, and yet we struggle to know how to, if we're honest, to know how to talk to them about Jesus because it can be very challenging um, and awkward, and especially like in a progressive post-Christian society that's where it's not even like really PC anymore. And so the question is, how do you go about inviting these people that God's put in your life to follow Jesus with you? Well, one option is you don't do it. Right? So one option is we turn our houses into castles. And even though we don't necessarily have like tall gates, although some of you do, even though we, we may not necessarily have tall gates and like moats, you know, to like keep people out, we have garages and we have fenced in backyards. And so we pull into our house, guys, I'm guilty of this. And we close the garage before we even say hello to our neighbor. And then we're in the backyard or we're inside with our feet kicked up on our phones. And we, we, we wall up and we stay away from those people on the outside who believe and live differently from us. That's not, that's not being a disciple of Jesus. So one option is we don't. Another option is we just kind of edit or update the way of Jesus and kind of take out all the offensive parts of the gospel so that we can fit in. And we don't feel like outsiders among our friends and our co-workers and inside our cultural context. And since both of those options are uh, dangerously unbiblical, we really do need a third and better option. And I think you find it in the life and the teachings of Jesus. You want to know how to, those people God's placed in your life, you want to know how to invite them to follow Jesus with you? how to invite them into the family of God, the kingdom of God, is through this practice of hospitality. It's through the practice of hospitality. Um, it's been said that the, the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? 
It's one of the ways my wife got me. Um, when it comes to the mission of Jesus, it might not be the quickest, but you could argue the most effective way to get the gospel into someone's heart is through their stomach. It's by inviting them to come and have a seat at your table. And what I love about this practice is that it's just so ordinary. Rosaria says it's radically ordinary. Like at Fellowship, we talk often about how discipleship is just something that, that happens in the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. There's nothing more ordinary and everyday than eating a meal and having a table. And so here's what Simon Kerry Holt says. This is one of my favorite quotes on hospitality. He's an Australian chef who got saved and became a theologian. And so Holt says this, Hospitality lies at the heart of Christian mission and is a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. Most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. At base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. This is the best definition of hospitality I've ever heard right here. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. Here's why I love this. God's reminding me that I don't have to be an exceptional Christian or an expert in the Bible or apologetics in order to reach people with the gospel. I just need to be ordinary and, and provide a space in my home and like unlock my front door and welcome people in and provide a context where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. That's hospitality. To quote Tim Chester again, he says something similar. He says, um, when you combine a passion for Jesus and shared meals, you create potent gospel opportunities. If you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, you'll be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message. But meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. This is not just a practice that we see in the life of Jesus. We're commanded to do this all throughout the New Testament, to carry this on as his body. Romans 12, 13, for example, let me just popcorn a few of these on the screen for you just to show you I'm not making this up. Paul commands us, seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, show, or it's the word practice, hospitality to one another without grumbling. For Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says this, let brotherly love continue. And here's how you love one another. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some of you have entertained angels unawares. I have, for the record, no idea what that looks like, but it sounds awesome. Apparently, um, there's situations where you might be showing hospitality to a stranger, and they might be an angel. I don't know. Um, nobody's ever said that when we bring our kids to their house for a meal, but <laughs> it's apparently something that can happen. So, in, in, to give another example, okay, in Luke 14, Jesus is having a meal with this really rich uh, ruler of the Pharisees, and Jesus notices that he's the only outcast at the table. All these guys are wealthy. All these guys are religious leaders. Jesus is a homeless prophet. 
from Nazareth. And so he, he recognizes, I'm the only one here who doesn't fit in. And then he gives this exhortation to the guy throwing this banquet. And the exhortation applies to us. And Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends. Now, he doesn't mean never. He's just saying, don't just think about your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors that you want to like invite into your Ponzi scheme or whatever. But he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and then you'll be blessed. Bring those people to your table and I'll bless you, God says. It's in the scriptures. I don't shoot the messenger. Those four categories, by the way, represent the social and the spiritual outcast of Jesus' day. Again, he's saying, eat and drink with people who are far from God, and I'll bless you. And you'll see the gospel at work in ways that will blow your mind. God is so serious about hospitality that he even says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 2, that to be an elder in the church, one of the qualifications is you have to be hospitable. So Jesus says, if, if, to, the, to the men who are going to lead and shepherd my church, you better model this for the rest of the flock because this is, this is the muscle of how the mission is going to go forward. This is how we're going to do this, is by being everyday, ordinary hospitality. And so if you don't model this, pastors, you'll be disqualified, Jesus says. And so at the risk of belaboring the point, I'm simply saying that we're commanded to do this. And I would argue that in a post-Christian, neurotically busy culture, Jesus' way is still the best way of inviting people into your, your life and into the kingdom of God. There's no better way to get to know somebody and share the gospel with them than over a meal. Uh, last Saturday night, I had the privilege of speaking at the House of Virtues, did, did a, a first annual banquet. House of Virtue is where our, our uh, missional community serves and we, you know, we cried and were, were humbled and thankful as the director, Wanda, stood up on stage and honored our missional community and just talked about how we remember their names and how um, we, we, you know, we sit with them and we make eye contact with them and we ask them questions about their life and we get to know their story and we share our story with them. And after it was over, I reminded our missional community, hey, what we're doing is hard sometimes, but it's not rocket science. I mean... We prepare a meal twice a month and we go out there and we eat it with them. And we sit with them at a table and we make eye contact and we ask them about their week and we get to know their story and we share our story. And so God just uses that. And, and, and it's, it's, it's not that there's not other things that we do to serve them, but the bread and butter of our ministry is just that. It's, it's bread and butter. It's like we go out and we spend time with them over a meal. And God blesses it. I don't share that with you to brag on us. You know why? Because there's nothing extraordinary about that. There's nothing ex extraordinary about us. It's very ordinary what we do as a missional community. And then God uses it in extraordinary ways. So here's a question I want to leave us with for the week. Okay, As a church, I want you to kind of use this, engage your imagination with this question. I'll put it on the screen, um, I think. Uh, what if we were to recapture... Radically ordinary hospitality as a way of life and apprenticeship to Jesus. What if it was the main way that we join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost? That's the question I want you to wrestle with as you prepare to engage in the practice this week. And the practice is really simple. Step one in the practice is just ask the Holy Spirit to show you a name or a face of someone in your life 
who doesn't know Jesus that you can share a meal with in the coming week or two. Step number two, contact that person and invite them to a meal with you. And step number three, share a meal with that person. Ideally, you would open your home or you would meet, if you can't do that, invite them to a third space like a restaurant or something like that. Um, Now, I want to just give you in in, in bullet point just a few practical things, um, and then I really will land the plane. Because I think that some of us uh, by this point are feeling perhaps a little bit, if you're like me, conviction, maybe heavy, maybe like this sounds, I know you keep saying it's ordinary, but it sounds really hard. I'm not sure if I'm good at this. So let me just, here's a few practical things and some expectations to put in place just to kind of prepare your heart for this practice, okay? And I'm going to move through these really quickly um, if you're taking notes. So um, first, hospitality is not complicated, but it's not always easy because it involves people. All right, uh, pastors regularly joke and say that ministry would be simple if not for the people. Um, I'm kidding, we don't, we don't really say that. <laughs> but we do. Um, and so it's simple, it's simple, but it's not always easy because it vol- involves people. And listen, you're one of them. <laughs> so you contribute to the mess and you make it harder than it has to be sometimes. And so do I. And so You just need to have the expectation when you do this that God's going to pull you into some uncomfortable places because you're going to, people are going to invade your space and then you're going to get yourself in conversations where you disagree, whether it's about sexuality or the Bible or the way of Jesus or politics or whatever. And you just need to know that that, I just, you need to hear me, hear me say that's going to be really good for you. Okay. Because this is really going to stretch you and it's going to sanctify you and God's going to use this to help you become more like Jesus. So just expect this to be. Uh, easy but challenging. Uh, second, remember again that the call to be hospitable is really just a call to be ordinary. If you're thinking, how in the world am I going to work this into my busy schedule, the beauty of this practice is you're already doing it. <laughs> you already eat two or three meals a day, um, which is like 21-ish times a week that you have a chance to practice hospitality. So do this. Just do what you're already doing, but repurpose it for the kingdom of God and his mission. Do what you're already doing, but invite other people into it. Invite someone to grab breakfast before work or grab lunch with someone on your break. Invite an unbelieving friend or family or whatever into your missional community family meal. Just, you don't have to add anything else to your busy schedule. Just unlock your front door and welcome people in, okay? Do what you're already doing. Be ordinary. Third, remember that hospitality is about service, not performance, okay? So don't worry if you don't know how to cook and you need to order pizza. I love pizza. I'll come eat it with you. It's great. Um, Don't worry if you're using paper plates instead of fine china. That's fine. Hospitality is not about trying to impress. It's about making people feel welcomed. And if I'm ever coming over to your house for dinner, just let me take some pressure off you. I'm, I'm way more uncomfortable by a house that's too clean than a house that's too messy. Because when I come over to a house that's too clean, I feel like I can't touch anything or my kids are going to make a mess. And it just, nothing feels safe for me, right? And so um, it just, a house that's too clean just doesn't say like, you're welcome here. It kind of says, watch where you step and, you know, um, take your shoes off. And I'm going to put like that plastic over my couch. Does anybody, does anybody still do that? You're a bad person if you do that. Like, <laughs> stop doing that. Like, that's just... Terrible, dude. Nothing about that screams you're welcome here, okay? Um, I'm a bad person too, so. Um, 
Okay, so it's about service. It's not about performance. You don't have to impress anybody with your culinary skills or whatever. You don't have to do that. It's not about that. Fourth, take a genuine interest in people by asking questions. So, okay, get to know what people do, uh, where, where they come from, what they love, what's their story. Be curious. You have a curiosity in you, unleash it. Okay, ask normal questions. What do you do? How long have you been married? How'd you two meet? You from here? If you're not from here, where'd you, where'd you grow up? How'd you end up in Paragould if you're not from here? And then listen, because people will give you opportunities to go deeper places with them. You said that uh, when you grew up, your dad wasn't around. What was that like for you? You said your mom raised you. There was four of you. Man, what was that like? You said you moved to Paragould after your divorce. I bet that was, and you didn't know anybody here. Man, I bet that was challenging. Tell, tell me more about that. Okay, ask questions. Be curious. I think you'll be surprised at how willing people are to engage you because they're so hungry to be known and to talk about something more than like, are the hogs going to do well this year under Chad's leadership? Like, I don't know. But can we talk? Like, that's great. I'll talk about that with you too. But like, there's other people want to be known. They want you to talk to them and go to deep places with them. It just takes a little courage. Fifth, share your story. Okay, the most powerful way you can share the gospel is by sharing your story. How did you become a Christian? Where were you when Jesus became real to you? Um, how has he worked in your life to forgive you, save you, heal you, empower you to forgive others, give you hope, and give you a family? Like, if you're a Christian, you have a story about how you were once lost and now you're found. And so you should share that story with people who don't know Jesus. Sixth, if you want to get some really good practice at this, join a missional community if you're not in one, and join the hospitality team if you're looking for a place to serve. We, we, every week we practice this in, in our missional communities. We come together, we have a family meal, and we practice together for what we ought to be doing in our homes with other people who are far from God. And so you've got a great opportunity to do that. And then I don't know how many of you know this, we have a whole team in our church devoted to hospitality. A team that welcomes you when you come into this place on Sundays, um, that has coffee and donuts and water for you, that helps you find a seat, that helps you know where the bathrooms and the kids' check-in are, um, that, that helps you kind of know, like, man, if you want to go further, here's what your next steps are. All of that, what we're trying to do, and we don't do perfectly, what we're trying to do, and I feel like Ginger does a phenomenal job at it. Um, yeah, we should give her a hand for sure. We're just trying to, as Simon Kerry Holt said, create an environment and a space where you can feel welcome and experience the love of the Father and where you can have a space where he can be at work in your life, an environment where you can come and, and you're not distracted. The only thing that's offensive would be the gospel itself, basically. And you can come in and you can interact with Jesus. And in fact, I want to invite you, if you're on the hospitality team, this is mandatory, by the way, um, and if you're not on the hospitality team and you're interested, you should come to this because September 16th, we're doing an appreciation lunch and a training. That's two weeks from today, right after the service. And we would love to have you come to that. Um, I've already gone long. So let me just say this. Finally, if, if you want to cultivate a life of hospitality, you do it primarily by remembering your own gospel story. Because Paul says this in Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you know what the primary motivation for hospitality is? It's welcoming outsiders. It's the, it's, it's the fact that when you were an outsider, Jesus welcomed you in. When you were an outcast, he took you in off the street 
and he saved you into his kingdom, and he gave you a seat at his father's table forever. That's your story. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, remember, like remember this, that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, lost without God in the world. But now, good news, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is your story. God has extended hospitality to you. He has been so hospitable to us, and so we want as a church to be hospitable to others. And that's the good news. It's the good news of God's hospitality that we close with each week when we come to this table, where we remember that when we were lost, broken, burned out, hopelessly lost, Jesus pursued us on this rescue mission, and he brought us into his kingdom through his, as Paul says, his shed blood in his body, which was broken for you. I'm going to go ahead and ask the band to come forward. And um, I'm going to ask that you would go ahead and stand, but stay in this moment, okay? Stay in this moment with us. Okay, the way we take communion here is you simply tear a piece of bread off, which represents Jesus' body broken. You dip it in a cup, which represents his blood shed for you. We have two stations um, on you know, here in the front and, and there in the back, and I think back over here is a gluten-free option. If that interests you, the gospel pairs well with gluten-free too. You can do that. Um, and so, but, but I wanted to say this. If you're in this room and, and um, you would say, like, I'm one of those who's far from God. I, I love how Jesus closes in, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who invites me in, I will come in and I will what? I will eat with him. I will have table fellowship with him. And so if you're in this room and you're, you would say that you don't know Jesus, all you have to do today is accept his invitation, unlock the door of your heart, and let him in. The same thing Zacchaeus did. He saw Jesus and he accepted his invitation to come and to be with him at his table. Jesus would love to. He is, in fact, extending that invitation to you this morning. And if you would um, come to him, we would invite you to come to this table, and, and, and we would love to, if, if, you, if it would serve you, to talk with you about that decision. I'll be available after the service. Jared, Luke, our pastors, we would love to meet you and talk with you if you make that decision. Would you please join me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your warm welcome. We thank you uh, for your pursuing love. We thank you for your grace to give us a seat at the table. I just pray, God, that, um, that you would continue in this moment to work in our hearts. Those who um, feel you knocking wouldn't resist. That um, those of us in the room who are, have already received you and who know you, that you would remind us again who we are. What we were saved to and what we were saved for. And let Fellowship Parable be a place that is known for the welcoming heart of the Father on display. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.